That's Luke chapter 18, starting from verse 9, page 877. He also told them, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Thank you very much. Annika, please do keep that passage open in front of you on page 877. That will help me as we go through. Um, And let me pray again for for God's help as we come to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, 
We do depend on you to open our eyes and our hearts and to be changed by your word. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit to be at work amongst us now. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Human beings have some amazing abilities. It's a Mothering Sunday, if you didn't know. Um, and it's great on that day to celebrate the ability to nurture others. We just heard about Ukraine and the refugees, the ability to make sacrifices, to serve needs of others, to help where it's desperately needed. Wonderful human abilities. But the ability I'm going to talk about now is much less positive than those two examples. No less remarkable, though. It's an amazing ability humans have to justify our own behavior as we condemn others. I wonder if you've come across that. It's there in our passage, chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And if you don't think that still happens today, you haven't been on Twitter. But actually, it's not just the kind of pylons of woke social media. All that kind of, it's amazing, it's kind of a righteous indignation that somehow justifies bullying with a mob. It's not just um, the kind of totalitarian impulses of cancel culture as well. Again, amazing, being so sure you're right that, and the other must be wrong, that their voice shouldn't even be allowed to be heard and discussed. Amazing. But it's not just those kind of stark examples. It really is everywhere, this attitude. For example, pick a typical set of traffic lights on Morningside Road. As an SUV driver who's honking his horn because the car in front of him pulled out in front of him, and then when the lights turned green, didn't move on quickly. The SUV man revs off thinking, what an idiot. I'm glad I don't drive as badly as that. At which point, a cyclist is coming past and swearing at him because he hasn't left enough width on the bike lane. Cyclist rides off thinking, what an idiot. I'm glad I'm not a gas-guzzling, environment-ruining SUV driver. The cyclist is so lost in his kind of self-congratulation, he barely notices the angry look from a pedestrian as he sails through a red light like he always does. The man walking thinks to himself, what an idiot. These cyclists, they never obey the rules of the road. But then when that man gets in his car, he drives well above 20 around Morningside. We just have this amazing capacity to justify ourselves while condemning others. In fact, more than that, often the way we justify ourselves is by looking down on others and thinking, I'm glad I'm not as bad as them. That's the um, story we've got here. The setting of the story is probably something we're not familiar with, two people going into a temple to pray. You don't get much of that around Edinburgh, but the attitude of verse 9 is alive and kicking. That looking down on others as a way of making ourselves feel okay it really is everywhere. I assume that's part of the kind of ugly satisfaction of reality TV. I, mean, I don't really know, but is that why people watch The Apprentice or Big Brother? You watch other people behaving in horrible ways and you think to yourself, well, at least I'm not as bad as that. Or parenting. I don't know if any of us here have ever seen, I don't know, a young parent losing it with their kids on the bus, swearing at them, thinking to yourself, well, at least I don't parent like that. 
Human beings, whether in religious or non-religious contexts, have this extraordinary capacity to assert we are okay as we look down on others. Why is it we feel such a desire to justify ourselves? Well, the Bible says whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we're Christians or not, God has given us a conscience in our hearts that, that is constantly telling us things are not well with our lives in our hearts. It's not always properly calibrated. We need God's word for that. We can deaden it. We can distort it. But actually, many people do have a nagging sense that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and I'm not entirely sure I'm the right side of the line, which gives us this deep psychological need to find a way of saying, I'm okay. Actually, we heard last week that the universe is heading towards a day of accountability, a day of judgment. We heard that there's going to be a day when everyone stands before the Creator. Everything in my life is going to be laid bare on that day before Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth. So actually, this nagging sense that I really need to know if I'm okay, it's not just some kind of distortion of reality, it's a pointer to reality. It's where the universe is heading, this great day of reckoning, day of justice. Last, year, last week, sorry, I introduced that as a really good thing in a world of injustice, of violence and abuse, whether on the international stage or the domestic one. But actually, it is also sobering news. If there's going to be a great verdict on my life on the final day, well, how can I know I'm safe? How can I know I'm okay? Well, today's passage addresses exactly that. And amazingly, it says you can be sure you're okay with God right now. That's what the word in verse 14 is talking about. When Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified, that's not justified to others or justified in his own eyes. That is, in God's sight, he was declared righteous. It's the early announcement of the final verdict on his life. Our passage is going to tell us we can be absolutely certain that things will be okay in the end, that God is for us, not against us. Now, the way it's going to work, um, we've got um, two pairs of comparisons. If you look on the back of the sheet, there's an uh, outline. We're not going to do point three. I decided that's too much, too much to swallow. So just points one and two. And each of those points has a comparison um, between um, two characters. Um, so first, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And then we'll get on to some children being compared with a rich ruler. So let's get in. First, uh, verses 9 to 14, point one. The verdict of God's coming kingdom is available now. The verdict of God's coming kingdom is available now. There is a genuine surprise, and not if you know it, but if you don't know this story, or if you were around in Jerusalem when Jesus first said it, um, it's a real surprise. Because Jesus picks in verse um, uh, verse. 10, two well-known characters, well-known types of people. A Pharisee, a tax collector. The Pharisee is someone who's genuinely a good guy. We find it hard to get our heads into that because for us, Pharisees are like pantomime villains. Whenever they pop up in the Bible, you all boo. This must be the bad guy. But actually, originally, we think that because they rejected Jesus. But originally, in the first century, they were respected They were a group of dutiful, keen, morally upright, socially contributing religious men. 
They would have been the kind of, oh, good, good on them, good for them kind of people, you know, helping with the community bake sale, um, the refugee efforts. Actually, you don't need me to point out the Pharisee's moral strengths because he does, verse 11. But just listen to his prayer, which kind of begins his moral CV. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. There's the mention of the other character. And the thing is, the Pharisee is saying some truth here. Like he is objectively a nicer guy than the tax collector. Tax collectors were notorious for extorting money from their own people to pay to the Romans. They were often unjustly lining their pockets with a little extra on top. If there's one person you would expect to be found guilty on the great day of reckoning, it would be the tax collector. Actually, and the tax collector will agree with that, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Before we get there, just listen to the other half of the Pharisee's prayer. There's the spiritual CV that says, what I haven't done, all these bad things. Now here's the positive side, what I've done to contribute to my standing before God. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's serious. Serious about serving God, serious about serving others, engaged in charitable giving, watching his life carefully, a faithful family man, he's reliable at work, like he's a good guy. But, of course, verse 9, he's putting trust in himself. In fact, he's even kind of standing by himself um, in verse 11. He doesn't want to be anywhere near the kind of riffraff, doesn't want their sinful stain kind of rubbing off on his squeaky clean record. Some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous treated others with contempt. Okay, so that's one way to pray. God, thank you that I'm okay because I'm better than them. I've not done that. I've done some good stuff. I wonder if we're ever tempted to approach God like that, to drift into that way of praying. You know... God, I've made some spiritual steps forward, or here's some evidence to reassure me that things are okay, to compare our performance with others, to look sideways at church and think, am I keeping up with the kind of agreed standard around here? To think, at least I'm not like that. Well, if we drift into that approach, the shock, obviously, of this story, the warning of this story, is that that man went home not justified. That's verse 14. Only one man went home justified, and it wasn't the Pharisee. I think this is just really sobering, because basically this is how most people in our world live. This approach to God of, I'm sure God will think I'm okay. I mean, I haven't hurt anyone, or I've done my bit. I've I've occasionally given to charity. I'm I'm fairly okay on the middle-class barometer. Jesus warns us, When it comes to God's eternal judgment, that is a dead end. It is deadly to approach God like that. In fact, the only kind of prayer that leads to being declared righteous in God's sight is the prayer of the tax collector in verse 13. Just have a look. It's much simpler, much shorter, much humbler, much more self-aware. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
What does sinner mean? Well, sin is to, to live with ourselves as boss, not God. To live our way in his world. To not love God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength as he commands. To not love others as ourselves. The reality is we've all done it. The only question is whether we admit it, like this man, and plea for mercy and humility. God, I don't deserve anything. Have mercy. That amazing punchline. 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. It's such a shock. If you know the story, I know it's not a shock, but it is such a shock. Meeting those two men on the street, you would never guess the one that was right with God was the dodgy tax collector. He was so many farther rungs down the ladder, the visible moral ladder, compared to the Pharisee. But Jesus is saying this illustrates a principle for all people, verse 14, uh, 15, everyone who, sorry, 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. We keep hearing that on this journey with Jesus. We heard it when we had the narrow door. How do you get through the narrow door to eternal life? Well, the only way is to humble ourselves. Those who exalt themselves will end up outside. The only way is to admit, I need forgiveness. This tax collector praying in the temple knows that he needs God to provide for him. That's what the temple was about, a a way of providing a sacrifice to pay for sin. Pointed forward to Jesus' death, which we'll get to next week. Tax collector's got it. I need help. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. I am not okay by myself on my own standing. And the amazing truth of verse 14 is that very day he went home justified. Amazing that. I remember a story um, chatting to a student um, from a Muslim background um, who, when we discussed about whether we had confidence about what would happen at the end in terms of God's judgment over our lives, he said he hoped Allah would be merciful. But he couldn't be sure. Couldn't be sure when, when the great scales weighed up the good things he'd done and, and the sins he'd done, what, how it would weigh out. Certainly couldn't be sure how justice would be served. Similarly, a a great friend at university um, from a Roman Catholic background would say, well, we can't know we're justified right now. We have to wait until God weighs up the whole life lived. Jesus Christ says, that man went home justified today. We can actually know. Because all it relies on is calling out for mercy coming to Jesus empty-handed. Now, I actually think this might be a real encouragement to some of us here who've been around for this series in Luke. We've been following Jesus now on the journey for quite a while, um, and he's been kind of showing us what it looks like to follow him. He's been showing us where the bar of discipleship is, saying what's it like to follow a cross-bound king. And actually, the bar has been pretty high. I don't know if you noticed that. Prioritize Jesus above all. Be willing to work for the gospel of Jesus with our resources. Being public in our allegiance to Jesus. In some ways, he's just been spelling out the first commandment. Have no other God before me. We've been seeing, though, that is pretty costly, actually. 
It's just possible some of us have got to this stage and have started to feel, oh, help, help. (laughs) I'm not really sure I am living with Jesus as number one. Even last week, we were told to persistently pray for God's kingdom to come. I wonder how our prayers have been this week. We've been told to look for and take every opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. And some of us may be thinking, well, if that's what Christian discipleship is, I'm not actually sure I'm hitting the mark. Am I really in the kingdom if my performance is so poor? What a wonderful thing it is then. As we come to the last couple of chapters of this journey to Jerusalem, Jesus reminds us of the bottom line of how anyone gets saved, of how you belong in this kingdom, of how you get the verdict righteous over your life, not by your kind of points-based performance score following Jesus, but instead by crying out, God have mercy on me, a sinner. That's our first point. The verdict of God's kingdom is available now. The Apostle Paul, he was one of Luke's friends, actually. They did a lot of traveling together in Acts. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans 5. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the tenses. We have been justified by faith. So right now we have peace with God. The final verdict already available today. That's an absolutely wonderful truth. Um, if you want something to chat about with folks afterwards, and I think we, I hope we do make the opportunity of the sun or student lunchtime um, for, for you undergrads, a chance to chat together and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly as we discuss what he said. This would be a great thing to chat about. What difference does it make knowing today that things are okay with God? How will it help you to know you're justified by God's mercy, not by our performance. Be a great thing to chat about. I was chatting to a student in the meadows this week, um, along with hundreds of other people in the meadows. Amazing. Um, I don't know where they've all come from, um, but they were all out. And we were sitting there, and he was chatting about some um, kind of major assessments he's got this week, some big deadlines. Um, he spoke of how easily for him he can drift into wanting to justify himself through academic achievements, as if that's what makes us okay. What a freeing thing it is to know that that before the most important judge of all, the one whose opinion matters above all, we can be certain we're already qualified, already justified. It's an absolutely wonderful truth, a freeing truth. Though actually a very hard truth to believe. The disciples struggled to get this. They struggled to believe it. And you can see they struggled to believe it by what happens next. Uh, So on into our second point. It's striking. No sooner have the disciples heard this story. And it's just crystal clear, isn't it, the story? God does not justify people on their performance, their spiritual credentials. They've just heard that, and then they prove they haven't got it at all. Because in verse 15, some babies are brought to Jesus. And the disciples think they have no place coming anywhere near him. Verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. Rebuked them, sorry. Now presumably the disciples thought, look, we know Jesus is important. Like he's the son of man. He's God's king. He's going to judge the living and the dead. 
There's no way someone like that, the kind of biggest celebrity to ever walk the planet, there's no way he would have time for a meet and greet with some babies. Wrong. Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Come on, disciples. Have you not yet got the point? The kingdom of God does not operate on a points-based system. It's not only open to VIPs. Quite the opposite, actually. Anyone who comes in, verse 17, will have to receive the kingdom of God like a child, or they shall not enter it. Now, let's think about what this, how this applies. Um, is it talking about welcoming children, for example, into church? Well, partly, actually, yes. In our morning service, um, while I was preaching uh, at the 9.30, underneath us, you could hear the happy sounds, well, mixed, but mostly happy sounds, of children. And it's wonderful, actually, as a church family, that we have children um, being taught about Jesus and how they're welcome in his family and just need to trust him. That's a wonderful thing about a Christian church, actually. The children are welcome. And not just children. The, the big lesson is you don't have to be a kind of net contributor to be welcome. That is, you don't have to have loads of money to give us, or muscles to move the chairs, or time to serve. You don't actually have to be healthy. What a precious thing that is for a number of our, number of our church family who aren't well. Sorry, I'm emotional because that's my wife's one of them. Um, you don't have to be healthy. And that, that can be on any front, physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. The most helpless person is welcome in a church because it's a community of grace. You don't get a score to get in. Actually, verse 17 pushes beyond just welcoming kind of the helpless and the child. It actually says, any grown-up who wants to belong to the kingdom must receive it like a child. So what is it about children we're supposed to emulate? Is it that children kind of can't think very carefully? Is it kind of throw your brain in the bin and just take a leap of faith? No, obviously, because Luke has written a really careful, orderly account to show us we can have certainty about Jesus. He wouldn't have bothered if this was a kind of anti-intellectual child, childishness. So what is it about children? Let me put a picture up. Is it their um, kind of cutie pie innocence? There you go, there's a fairly happy, nice-looking baby. It looks like an angel, doesn't he? Wouldn't hurt a fly. Uh, the reality is that's not what children normally look like. I can testify to that, as any other parents would here. Um, and actually, we've just seen from the Pharisee that it's not about being a relatively good boy that gets you right with God. So it can't be about anything about innocence. Uh, that's nonsense. Um, what it is about, and there's a clue in that picture, just look in verse 17 again. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's about how children receive. So in the picture, that uh, child is receiving a present. It's striking because he's actually been kind of held in place even so he can reach it. The children Jesus has just been handed, verse 15, are infants, that is young, babies. They're helpless. They're at the age and stage where everything has to be done for them, where there's no chance of them saying, how much do I owe you? after the present, or even saying, oh, thank you so much. I knew after my last six months' performance that I deserved some kind of bonus. 
They just receive empty-handed. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like that. The only way to belong, the only way actually for it to belong to you is to receive it as a gift, to humble ourselves like a child, like a tax collector, emphatically not like the Pharisee. So there's the positive case study in our second point, how to belong to God's kingdom. Now it's available if you come like a child, empty-handed, receive it as a gift. But just like with the first parable, we also get the kind of flip side example, the how not to do it, which brings us to the rich ruler. So let me put another picture up. Now this rich ruler is being contrasted with, with the helpless baby. And kind of on every metric on which you might kind of assess a new member at church, well, he looks like a shoe-in. The disciples think he's definitely going to join the club and add value. Let's just look through some of them. So he's sincere. Look at the question, verse 18. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a fantastic question. How many people are asking that question? Wonderful. Here's a guy who's properly interested. Secondly, he's a ruler. That is, he's powerful and influential. He's a guy with real clout in society. Imagine how helpful that would be for the disciples, to have a friend in high places. He's really rich. Did I notice that? Did you notice that? End of verse 23, he was extremely rich. Now, we don't know how he made his millions, but it wasn't through a dodgy, unscrupulous way like the tax collector because he's able to say that he hasn't broken the commandment, do not steal. So he's a moral guy, like he's a good boss, good neighbor, good son. You could trust his word. He's respected by many. I mean, you'd let him babysit your kids. He'd probably be willing to. I mean, he's just great. He's a real catch. This would be a great disciple. So whereas with the children, the disciples were acting as bouncers. Sorry, folks, Jesus is too busy for you. Well, you can imagine them undoing the VIP express lane for this guy. Come right through, sir. Jesus will see you shortly. But the reality is that for all his credentials, he's missing the one thing that's needed. Like the Pharisee, he's not coming empty-handed, dependent on Jesus like a child. Let's just look at the conversation. So he asked, verse 18, Good teacher, what must they do to inherit eternal life? Jesus begins to give him clues that actually he has a problem. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. It's the first clue that actually you might not be good enough to do what's necessary to gain eternal life. By God's standards, actually no human being except Jesus is good. He doesn't get that hint though. So Jesus then sets him, verse 20, a short exam. It's an interesting exam because it's quite selective. He goes to the Ten Commandments, but not all ten of them. Just look at that on the screen. I've stuck the full list up there. And you may notice the black ones are the ones Jesus refers to, which are all kind of socially focused. So care for your, honor your mum and dad and, and don't murder, don't lie, don't steal. But the ones about God and loving God as number one, he skips over. The one against covetousness at the end, which Colossians calls idolatry. Again, he skips over that, Jesus. It's another hint, this selective test. You think people can be good enough or do enough to inherit eternal life. Well, how are you doing with keeping God's law? 
Even just the Ten Commandments, how are you doing? Well, the man knows the law and should have admitted, actually, to be honest, I may have been a good neighbor and a good son and a good citizen, but when it comes to serving God as number one, I'm nowhere. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That would have been a good response at this moment. Please help me receive the kingdom as a gift because I'm definitely not okay myself. But that doesn't come out. And so Jesus stops beating around the bush and goes straight for the point in verse 22. He puts his finger on the man's idolatry. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus knows this man is not putting God first. He can't let go of his money. He can't put money under God. And so he ends up walking away sad. Striking, Jesus then generalizes, verse 24. He says, rich people have a handicap. We don't often think like that, but they do. Have a handicap when it comes to entering God's kingdom. Jesus said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, difficult is to undersell it, verse 25. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You may have heard of you out there. There's a story out there that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle, and camels could just about squeeze through if they took off enough bags. Um, It's a lovely story, but it's not true. It was made up centuries later. Because Jesus here is saying, it's impossible. I don't know if you're one of those people who always thinks they can get into a smaller car parking space than the size of the car. I sometimes have that. Um, However you parallel park a camel, it is never going to go through the eye of a needle, like the tiny eye of a needle. Jesus is saying it's impossible. Even with a blender and a straw, it would be impossible. Verse 26, the disciples get the point. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now next week, Luke is going to help us know how God makes it possible. How the impossible can be made possible. We'll, see, we'll think about Jesus' death and the way he can change us from the inside out. We'll, we'll do all that next week. But I hope this week we're beginning to see why the kingdom must be received like a child. If nothing I can do can make it possible, if even the basic command of put God first is not one that we can do ourselves in our own strength, I hope we're starting to see why it must be received like a child. We're sinners in need of mercy, the tax collector. We're little children in need of help to change. Now, I should just address whether this means Jesus is commanding us each to get rid of all our wealth. I don't think it's a direct command to us. It's specific to this man and his idolatry. Through the New Testament, you do see Christians who have material resources, houses, wealth, and use them generously for the gospel. So it's not a blanket kind of telling off anyone who has resources. But just before we all take a sigh of relief and kind of put our budgets away unchanged, it's worth remembering that on this journey with Jesus, he has repeatedly warned us 
that money can easily take God's place. Remember chapter 16, you cannot serve God and money. He's repeatedly said that we should be willing to lose our lives in this world for the gospel. He's even said to use worldly wealth to make friends for eternity. I don't know what you were thinking when we were hearing that that, um, global update earlier. The main thing I was thinking was, what a great use of resources that people could hear the gospel in that country. Now, humanly, it's impossible to change our hearts. It's impossible to deny ourselves and follow Jesus at such cost. Actually, we're going to go on next time to see that Jesus can make the impossible possible. And so, for today, the key attitude is to come empty-handed, to say, for my past record, I need mercy. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And in terms of living out a kind of kingdom life, living Jesus' way, well, I've got nothing to offer. I need help to change. Luke wrote this book so that we can have certainty. I wonder if you do when it comes to belonging to Jesus' kingdom. It's really very simple. Just come to Jesus empty-handed. And we're okay. And it will help us change. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you have provided a way for sinners like us to be declared righteous because of the death of Jesus. We pray that we would all have the attitude of dependence on you, empty-handed. Please would this be a church where we don't exalt ourselves as if we've got things sorted, but humble ourselves and come empty-handed to receive your grace. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.